If you have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. I should note, uh, we are not going to look at every single passage in the Gospel of Matthew. We would be uh, years uh, in the Gospel of Matthew uh, if we did that. So we're going to focus largely uh, on the narrative portions of Matthew, where Jesus is interacting with people. We'll look at a few places where he does uh, teaching, but that's why we're not. That's why we're skipping from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to just after it. So we're not going to look at the entirety of Matthew's Gospel. We'll finish this up actually. Uh, the week of Easter uh, in the spring. But God's word for us this morning comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Listen to this. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Friends, this is God's word for us, and it is absolutely true. There's a lot here. Uh, we got three vignettes. Uh, we're going to look at them uh, separately, and then we're going to tie them together here at the end. In the first story we're looking at, verses 1 to 4, uh, we have Jesus having just concluded the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the nature of life in the kingdom. And he's been up on a mountain, and he is coming off the mountain, and a huge crowd is following him. When a leper approaches him, and this leper approaches him and kneels and says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me 
clean. In the ancient world, leprosy was a variety of skin diseases, not just the modern disease called Hansen's disease, which is usually what we think of as leprosy. So it was a variety of conditions, but leprosy was absolutely feared and dreaded. In fact, in Numbers 12, verse 12, uh, one of the uh, children of Israel was diagnosed with leprosy, and the Lord likened it to a living death. It was feared. People drastically and, and fearfully considered uh, leprosy. In fact, when you were diagnosed with leprosy in Leviticus 13, you were pronounced to be unclean. Think about what that would feel like to be pronounced unclean, unworthy, you would feel undoubtedly unlovable, and you would be absolutely untouchable. Uh, We know now that uh, people that experience long periods of touch deprivation uh, easily fall into depression, into feelings of isolation, and even promotes aggression in them. People with leprosy just experienced constant touch deprivation. And they also experienced constant shame. Shame. Friends, I think we all have things in our lives that make us feel unclean. That make us feel unworthy. That make us feel unlovable. That maybe even make us feel untouchable. Things that we've thought, things that we've said, maybe things even that we have done. And these are things that that haunt us. These are things that we are terrified people will find out and reject us. And these are oftentimes things that we secretly suspect make God kind of disgusted with us. Shame. We all have it. We all experience it. In the ancient world, rabbis would not come within six feet of lepers. They believed in the ancient world that to touch a leper was to be instantaneously contaminated with leprosy. So how will Jesus respond to a leper approaching him in front of a crowd? This is a tense moment here. Verse 3 tells us how Jesus responds. He touches. He grabs. That's actually what the Greek says. He grasps the leper and says, I want to be clean. I want to be clean. The leprosy was immediately healed. One commentator reflected on this, and he says this, the gospel is in that grasp. This is the easiest of the miracles to understand. Here is a man who, since becoming certifiably leprous, had not been touched. Few acts would affect the shamed leper like this man's touching him. And in that touch, we have God's identifying love. It is the gospel that God, through his son Jesus, touches us, enters even physically into our lives, and makes us his. 
This is a, a quick exchange here in Matthew's gospel, but friends, don't miss the profundity of what is happening here. Think of this. Jesus touches the man before healing him. Jesus doesn't say be healed and then touch the guy once he's not unclean and once he's not dirty. Jesus touches him and then heals him. And Jesus, as he does this, is not wincing or flinching or holding his nose or disgusted. And friends, I want you to see how good of news this is for us. Because the Savior who touches lepers is not scared or disgusted by you. The Savior who touches and heals lepers is not disgusted or grossed out by you and your sin. It's also amazing how Jesus turns the understanding of the ancient world on its head because the uncleanness doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus' cleanness infects the leprous man. The, the holiness of Jesus flows outward. The uncleanness of the man doesn't infect Jesus. And Jesus restores this man physically and spiritually, but also socially. Because leprosy was isolating. Lepers had to live outside of the cities. They made colonies of themselves because they couldn't live among people without leprosy. And so by healing this man, Jesus not only undoes his shame, he restores this man to the community and the community to this man. He undoes the shame that isolates. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus sends the man off. And he instructs him not to announce what has happened, but rather to go and make the required offering under the law. The man had been healed of his leprosy. His shame had been undone. In the ancient world, in ancient Israel, lepers were the most unclean and ostracized people, followed only by Gentiles. And the story continues. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus enters Capernaum where he is approached by a centurion. Now that tells us two things. The centurion uh, is, number one, probably a Gentile. He's probably Syrian. We know that there were Syrian troops under the authority of the Roman Empire stationed in Israel uh, in the first century. So he's a Gentile, which means he is unclean. Uh, less unclean than a leper, but more unclean than just about anything else. Also, as a centurion, he is a Roman soldier, which means he is an officer uh, in the Roman army. Uh, the, a centurion uh, was over a military unit called a century, uh, which is a hundred. Um, so he was over a group of other soldiers. He was the enemy of God's people. He was an oppressor of God's people. He is an unclean Gentile enemy of God's people. He is the ultimate outsider who does not belong. And he approaches Jesus. Look at this exchange that they have in verses 6 to 9. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I have a servant at home that is paralyzed and suffering greatly. And Jesus, without even thinking, says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion protests. He says, no, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say a word and he'll be healed. I am a soldier. 
I know how authority works. And Jesus marvels. Jesus commends the faith of this man. He says, I haven't found faith like this in Israel. I tell you, Gentiles like this will come in and feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be on the outside, looking in, longing to be at this feast. Think of what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that the model of faith in the kingdom is not a pious Jew, but rather an unclean Gentile oppressor. Jesus says to his followers, this is what you are supposed to be. This guy, this, this Gentile who is oppressing you is what you are supposed to be. People like this will feast in the kingdom while the presumptuous stand outside looking in the window in the darkness at the feast that is happening. Friends, Jesus does this again and again in the Gospels. He totally subverts what we think about who is in and who is out. Think about in Luke 18, he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And they both go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands up and says, Lord, thank you for not making me like all of these other people. And all the other people are like, yeah, that guy's pretty great. The tax collector stands by himself, doesn't even lift his eyes above shoulder level, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy, the tax collector, he's the one who's in, not the Pharisee. Jesus is confounding our expectations in these passages. Verse 13 tells us, Jesus speaks the word, and the servant was healed at that very moment. And in this story, I believe Jesus is inviting us to consider our standing in the kingdom. He is inviting us to consider what it is that gets us into the kingdom and what it is that keeps us in that same kingdom. The original audience, the original people that Jesus would have been walking among would have said, a pious Jew is the ideal citizen in the kingdom, one who keeps the law and walks in obedience. And Jesus says, instead, I'm the reason you get into the kingdom. It is entirely your posture towards Jesus. It is your faith in Jesus that gets you into the kingdom. That's why the centurion gets in, but the pious Jews who rejected Jesus had nothing to do with the kingdom. And this is important. It's important for us to consider because sometimes I think we Christians act like Jesus gets us into the kingdom but then it's up to us to stay there. We, we can act like Jesus gets us in, but then being a good Christian becomes the thing that keeps us in the kingdom. And if that's the way we live, we run around trying to do good Christian kind of things. So we try to read our Bible more, we try to pray more, we try to tithe and volunteer and go to church as often as we can and go on missions and do evangelism with every person we encounter. 
And we constantly feel guilty. We constantly feel like we should be better Christians. Does anyone feel this way or is it just your pastor? (laughs) Amen. I remember when I was growing up, when I got into high school, I really got serious about my faith and I used to wake up in the middle of the night and start reading my Bible for fear that Jesus would come back and find me not doing something Christian. Maybe that is completely unrelatable to you and it just demonstrates the neuroses of your pastor. But that's where I was. I thought it was up to me to be good. I thought it was up to me to be better in the kingdom. But friends, there's good news for us in these words. Because what Jesus is telling us here is that we are saved and we are kept in the kingdom by the object of our faith and not by its quality, its quantity, its intensity, or its practice. In other words, friends, we are saved by Jesus, not how well we believe in Jesus. We are saved by Christ, not by our efforts, not by the outworking even of our faith in Jesus. It is ultimately our posture towards Jesus that matters. And the Christian life is about responding to what Jesus has done for us. It is about responding to the goodness of the gospel in love. Friends, we read the Bible not to secure God's blessings, but because we want to know the God who has redeemed us. And and in short, what I'm just trying to say, God is not disappointed with you. God is not frustrated at your prayer life. God is not frustrated at how rarely you read the Bible. And this is not the sermon that you should go home and say, hey, the pastor said not to read our Bible or pray. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the reason that we read the Bible and pray is because we are already loved and accepted because of Jesus. Not because we're trying to keep ourselves in his good graces. The centurion brings nothing to Jesus. He brings nothing. He brings a a resume that includes oppressing the people Jesus has come to save. Jesus came to save his people from people like the centurion. All he has is faith. And Jesus says, yes, this guy is in the kingdom. It's good news. There's one more little section here that we're going to look at this morning. Verses 14 to 17. Jesus enters Peter's house and finds Peter's mother-in-law sick. And it says that he touches her hand and heals her. And she rises and begins serving. But word has gotten out. And verses 16 and 17 tell us that as the sun goes down, people from the entire surrounding area begin bringing the sick and demon-oppressed, and Jesus heals them. And he casts out the demons with but a word. Matthew tells us that this fulfills Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, what Rob read to us earlier in the service. It's about a mysterious and a holy figure in the Old Testament that we call the suffering servant. And the Bible tells us that this figure, when he comes, will bear our illnesses. He will bear our grief and our disease and our sin. He will take away those things from God's people. 
And the God will crush and destroy this man, but then exalt him and raise him and heal God's people, bringing them peace. Matthew says, this is him. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting on. This is the suffering servant. And so, friends, I want you to think about your Savior. Think about who Jesus is. He is not detached from human suffering. Jesus marches directly into it without flinching, collecting, taking, bearing our disease, our brokenness, our sin. Another commentator reflects on this, and he says, Step by step in the streets of Palestine, Jesus takes on himself every infirmity he heals. He becomes a collector of sorrows as step by step he proceeds with unswerving purpose to drown them in the sea of sufferings of the cross. A collector of sorrows. Friends, Jesus continues in that role today. Jesus invites you this morning to bring your sorrows to him, to bring your grief, to bring your sickness, to bring your brokenness and your pain and your hardship and your guilt and your shame and your fear and your sin. And Jesus takes all of that upon himself without flinching because he is a collector of sorrows. You see, the trajectory that Jesus sets here in these three little vignettes ultimately culminates in the cross, where Jesus takes on himself the full weight of our sin, the full weight of our illness, the full weight of our brokenness, the full weight of our shame and our guilt, and we finally see on the cross the heart of God in all of its fullness and all of its glory. Because on the cross... Like the leper, our shame is undone. On the cross, like the centurion, we outsiders become citizens of his kingdom and invited to a feast for eternity. On the cross, like the sick and oppressed, our sin and our brokenness is healed and undone. He's a collector of sorrows. One of my favorite musicians is a weird avant-garde guy named Sufjan Stevens. Uh, If you know his music, uh, you know what I mean when I say he's weird, because he's just kind of weird. But he has a song called Casimir Pulaski Day, which is itself a strange title for a song. But the song is about, as a child, him experiencing the death of one of his friends. And throughout the song, you see him wrestling with The fact that he continues to see God's glory in the world, even as he's watching his friend get sicker and sicker and ultimately die. And the song ends with these words, and he's talking about Jesus here. He says, oh, the glory when he took our place, but he took my shoulders and he shook my face and he takes and he takes And he takes, and he takes. Friends, Jesus takes our grief. Jesus takes our sickness. 
He takes our brokenness. He takes our pain. He takes our hardship. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes our fear. He takes our sin. He takes and he takes and he takes because he's a collector of all of our sorrows. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who moves with unflinching purpose into our suffering, who moves without flinching, moves without wincing into our shame, who comes to us when we are outsiders with nothing to commend us and invites us to trust in him that we might be accepted and loved, and who takes upon himself all of our pain, all of our sickness, all of our guilt and fear and shame, and heals them all at the cross. Father, anchor us in this gospel. And even now, as we come to your table, we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in us, that you would take these ordinary elements, this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup, and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of Christ's love and work on our behalf. Father, let us delight in our Savior who collects our sorrows. We pray these things in his name. Amen.